Welcome to Business Lens, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us on broadcast on WKXL and you're thinking to yourself, man, I'd like to hear the rest of this show. I'd like to like to hear some of the earlier shows. You can catch us in the Capital Close-Up podcast feed, also available wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, as always, I'm joined by Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America, also an outstanding podcast, always an outstanding listen. Chris, it's great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited today because we get to talk about fun stuff, deep stuff. I mean, there's there's always stuff going on. We could talk about the run-up of the stock market. We could talk about any number of sectors or industries. But I think the conversation topics this week are sort of conversational candy. They're business, they're economics, yes, but they're also about the broader world, entertainment, the way we consume media. Let's start with Disney. We've talked about Disney before. It emerged in the last week that Disney Plus has achieved 95 million subscribers. <clears throat> their, their goal, their, their target a year ago was for 2024 to hit 90 million subscribers. So they're just slightly ahead of schedule. Maybe they were lowballing us all here, but what does that say about Disney Plus as a company, about as an offering, um, as an investment? I think even if you allow for the fact that the pandemic has led to a lot of more of us spending a lot more time watching Netflix, watching uh, you know Hulu, watching Disney Plus, even if you allow for that, it really is pretty astonishing what Disney has pulled off here. Again, um, as you indicated, when they launched this in late 2019, they laid out their timeline and said, five years from now, we want to be at 90 million subscribers. Even if they were lowballing it, and there's no real great reason for them not to lowball it, but even if you say, okay, they're lowballing it a little bit, to hit 95 million subscribers in just over a year is incredible because the promise of Disney Plus was always there, but the execution of it, the way that they have rolled it out, the reception to uh, not just what they already have in their catalog, all of the Star Wars movies, all of the Marvel movies, Pixar, all of that, but the original series, particularly The Mandalorian, and the way that that, that has driven signups and people to say, okay, I'm going to subscribe to this because I want to, I want to see what else they have here. Um, I think they've done, done a tremendous job and it's worth remembering that the rollout of Disney plus was delayed by a couple of years. They, they originally were thinking they would launch their streaming service somewhere in the range of 2016, 2017. Um, they really took the time to get it right. And I, I'm assuming they feel gratified that they did get it right. When you look at numbers like this. What does it say about, and this is, the, this is the philosophical discussion that I teased a moment ago, what does it say about what we can expect uh, in the evolution of streaming content over the next couple of years? Obviously, Disney has, as you alluded to, led with content tied to really well-established, probably the most powerful media brands that exist, Star Wars, Marvel, these are tentpole brand identities, very familiar to consumers already 
wildly successful in movies. And they're able to provide that content and then build beyond it with new shows, new shorts, new features. And so they have what I would bet on. I, I, there's no reason to think that that won't continue to be successful. Netflix, on the other hand, doesn't have quite as much of that kind of core prefabbed content with, with those kinds of deep, powerful tent poles. So on the one hand, you could argue, boy, this is gonna, this is gonna usher in a golden age for content creators who are going to have all of these services that are scrambling to offer more content to subscribers. This is great. It's great for consumers. It's great for content creators. On the other hand, there's a risk of a rush toward quantity and variety over quality. What do you think we can expect both as consumers and as investors? I think as consumers, um, it's great because we have all of these choices. And it's clear when you look at the different streaming services, they are each in their own way sort of telling us with the way that they promote their services, they're telling us what they are all about. Um, I, about a month ago, um, I threw out my back. So I spent a couple of days in bed and I was watching cable television because I still have cable television. And I was struck by the fact that AMC, the cable network, AMC, has their own streaming service that they are promoting. And this is the network behind shows like The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad and that sort of thing. I was struck by the fact that AMC's message was, was I believe their tagline is only the good stuff. AMC is saying, look, we're not going to overwhelm you with quantity, but the shows that we have, the things that we have in our service, you're really going to like because they're high quality. And when you listen to the creators, the showrunners, the writers, the actors and actresses, when you listen to them talk about negotiations with these different production entities, one of the things that uh, they will say about how they're being pitched you know, in the case of Netflix, um, Netflix is now pretty experienced at this. And Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO at Netflix, has a great reputation in Hollywood. And um, so Netflix is being seen as a really great production studio to work with. Um, on the flip side, when you uh, hear them talk about some of these other, whether it's television networks, traditional broadcast networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, um, or some of these cable networks like AMC or FX, um, one of the thing, part of those um, entities pitching these showrunners is, hey, we're going to give you more attention. If you go do um, a show on Netflix, you're going to get maybe three days worth of promotion. We're going to be promoting you for a couple of months because we don't have that many things to promote. We're going to give you you know, the, the white glove treatment, that sort of thing. Um, so I think that as investors, uh, you always want to look at the cost. That's, the, that's sort of the, the promise and the challenge of Netflix. It's been a great stock because Netflix has been great at sort of managing their cash flow. Um, people who um, are a little bit more bearish about Netflix look at that number. And when I say that number, I'm talking about Netflix comes out every quarter and they talk about their cost of content, how many billions of dollars they are on the hook to spend 
whether it's buying the rights to movies that have been produced elsewhere or it's original shows and original movies that they are producing. So that's, um, that's something I think investors always want to keep an eye on is what is this, whether it's Disney Plus or Netflix or someone else, what are they spending? And then what are they able to charge? Um, that's, that's part of what's interesting about Disney Plus is, you know, you look at the 95 million subscribers, that's an amazing number to hit. They're not charging a lot of money. Um, I think the average uh, they are getting per subscriber is less than six dollars. Um, that average is a lot less than what Netflix is getting. So um, that gives Disney a little bit of uh, ability to pull that pricing increase lever over time. But right now they are choosing to focus on let's get people into the ecosystem and we'll raise prices further down the line. Well, speaking of which, I, I can't help it because this is just such a fascinating topic. We'll do one more on this. It is interesting that the that the model for cable companies for a long time was bundling, right? You you want ESPN, which is kind of the premier for a long time. That's how you you got your your sports and information. Okay. Well, you've got to accept these other 500 channels. And that is what leads you to this feeling of 500 channels, nothing on. It seems like the, the direction we're going in now, you alluded to AMC having their own streaming. Peacock has got streaming. Disney, HBO, all of the, all of the content creators, all the studios have streaming. And so you're unbundling. And you as a consumer on the one hand, have more choice. You get to make an a la carte selection of the, the pieces you want. On the other hand, you lose a little bit of that convenience of you make one payment, you make one consumer decision, you get all the stuff you're conceivably going to want. Do you see a friction point here where consumers have been saying for a long time, release us from cable tyranny, we wanna be unbundled. Are they gonna hit a, a point where they say, not, not so sure that, that we had all intended consequences here. I think, I think they are going to hit that point. And I think for a lot of people as consumers, um, it, you know, you get that one monthly cable bill. It's, it's a little bit of a sticker shock when you see it, if you're getting your home internet access through your cable company, that sort of thing. Um, it's probably to the benefit of Netflix and Disney plus that the, there's not one monthly bill where we get all of our streaming services at the same time. That being said, uh, someone in your home, um, whether it's you or someone uh, you're related to by marriage, uh, someone is going to um, take a couple of minutes and say, wait a minute, let, let me do the math here because it's not complicated math. It's the basic addition that we all learned in grade school. Okay, if we're paying for Netflix every month, we're paying for Disney. At some point, someone does the math and says, you know what? We got we to gotta cut something. And that's where I think that, to go back to the investing angle, that's where I think Netflix and Disney are in a good position. And I think shareholders are probably pretty comfortable with the fact that Netflix and Disney Plus in some order are the first and second choice now for people who are looking for streaming services in their home. Um, you know, HBO Max, uh, the new Paramount Plus um, that's coming in early March, that rollout happens in early March. You know, they, they got their work cut out for them because um, it's, it's not quite a zero-sum game, 
But at some point, you have enough streaming services where you're going to say, or someone you live with is going to say, no, we got to cut this down. Let me tell you, when the Hallmark Channel offers a niche of their Hallmark movies, um, you know, maybe paired with Lifetime movies, they're going to make a killing. I'm just you heard it here first. All right, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on. It's just we could talk all day. It's a really a fascinating topic. I know you had you had noted for me. We were talking before the show, kind of an interesting follow up to the conversation we'd had in our last show about the transition away from the leadership of Jeff Bezos uh, as he steps down as CEO at Amazon. Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott, died suddenly uh, over the la- in recent days, and the board of directors of that company have said that they're going to take two weeks to find a replacement. And this just brought up for you, and, and you wanted to note, this is so hard. It's so challenging to find a new CEO. What, what's that all about? This is something I'm not really familiar with. What goes into something like that, and why is it so hard? You know, uh, it, it didn't get a ton of attention um, last year when it happened, um, uh, in part because we were in the earlier days of the pandemic. But uh, Jamie Dimon, um, uh, longtime CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, had um, what we refer to as a cardiac event. Um, and so uh, Jamie Dimon went to the hospital. Um, he is fine now. He is in, he's in good health. Um, but I read a story recently, a great sort of like behind the scenes um, story about uh, about Diamond, his leadership, and about that incident. And when he knew he was going to the hospital, um, he called one of his lieutenants and said to her, you know, this is what's going on. You know what to do. And she said, yep, I do. And um, she, the, basically, J.P. Morgan Chase has, and this is how it's referred to in the article, a Jamie got hit by a bus plan. Um, and so the business didn't miss a beat because the CEO was in the hospital taking the time that he needed to recover. And it was one of those things that I read. I thought, all of the companies that I own shares of, do they all have similar plans? Do they, like, I like, you know, Arnie Sorensen was 62 years old. He was um, uh, battling pancreatic cancer. Uh, I'm sure. Um, they were at some stage thinking about, okay, maybe he's going to step down. He had recently sort of pulled back from his duties. Um, but it's really difficult to find a replacement CEO. In the case of Arnie Sorensen, um, he's been CEO for, for almost a decade, and uh, Marriott has become the largest hotel chain in the world under his leadership. So very big shoes to fill. But when you think about all the things the CEO has to be good at, um, it's, um, it's a big list of things, particularly when we're talking about a public company. It's a little bit easier to be CEO of a private company because you're not spending any time on those public company things, whether it's quarterly conference calls um, or regulatory affairs with the SEC. So um, I, I, you know, the, the board of directors at Marriott has their work cut out for them because, um, uh, again, Arnie Sorensen leaves um, uh, a big legacy uh, to follow. So I don't envy whoever is going to be the next CEO of Marriott. In my own professional experience, I've served as a deputy in a different, different uh, line of work to a chief of staff, kind of similar to a CEO in a political operation. And I've also then, as a chief of staff, had deputies. It is incredible how important it is, the, the continuity and the, the level of trust you need to have that you're indisposed, you're out of pocket, whatever it is, 
um, that you have people you work with as a team who are ready to execute on the same vision, it's really hard. It's really hard to achieve. So I, I, I see exactly what you're driving at. Yeah. The last thing I'll add is, you know, the times that I've had the chance to interview CEOs, um, you know, the, the question that comes up sometimes in jobs interviews is, you know, tell me about your, you know, a, a weakness that you have. To me, um, the, the more illuminating question to ask a CEO is, particularly when they're running a public company, is what is a weakness you have and what systems have you set up to compensate for that weakness? Because if you're the CEO of a big public company, you can't be everywhere at once. You're not great at everything, um, even though some CEOs might think that. And so um, the really great CEOs are the ones who recognize the things that they're not great at or the things that they are not as passionate about. And they build systems and put deputies in place to handle those parts of the business. I love that modification because of course, if you get that question on a job interview, you know, there's all the trite stuff you can say. I work too hard. Yeah. Sometimes I care just too much. <laughs> oh, all right. One more topic I wanted to hit, and it's such a deep one. It's such a, boy, it's a profound one in, in a, a business sense, yes, but sort of a societal, cultural sense that I almost I almost just want to tease it. We can touch on it, and we might we might do a whole future show about it. I was really intrigued to read an article this week that characterized a, a, a simmering war that, that's brewing really between two different visions of the tech sector and the internet, between tech titans, Facebook and Apple. Facebook's model is to monetize personal data and sell advertising. Their consumers are advertisers. Users are the product. Apple, on the other hand, seeks to prioritize data privacy and sell hardware and services. Their customers are the users. So, so much we could unpack from this basic framing. Let's just start super high level. Do you agree? Is that, is that the right way to think about the fundamental business model dichotomy that you're seeing, not just between Facebook and Apple, but between other players? Are those the basic dominant categories of how companies are competing in this space? Absolutely. One of the things at The Motley Fool that we always tell people when they are just starting out investing is when you are looking at a company and you're thinking about buying shares of it, a great first question to ask is, how does this company make money? You got to be able to answer that question. And if you're thinking about buying shares, the follow-up question is, how do they plan to make more money in the future? Because that's what's going to reward you as a shareholder. Facebook makes money off of ads. Yes, they have you know, Instagram, all, you know, all these different things. They're an ad play. And they are one of the big, they and uh, Google are the biggest ad businesses out there. Uh, as you said, Apple makes money by selling expensive stuff. And by the way, it's worth pointing out, both of these businesses have succeeded beyond and for longer than most people thought they would. The history of consumer technology goes like this. New products start out and they're very expensive 
And then over time, the cost of those products drops. And some cases it drops dramatically. A flat screen TV costs so much less now than it did 15, 20 years ago. That is how most consumer technology has gone. Apple has absolutely bucked that trend. Apple's ability to sell a brand new mobile phone for over $1,000. People were saying, go back and look. People were saying 10 years ago, well, they're not going to be able to keep this up. They can't keep raising the price of the iPhone. That's not how history has gone. Same thing with Facebook. Go back and look at the early days of Facebook. People thought, well, people, you know, they're doing this now. They're not like, how big can they get? At some point, they're going to serve up so many ads that people are going to leave the platform. How many more people can go on this platform? Um, so it, it really is the right way to think about them in broad strokes in terms of how they how the businesses are constructed, how they make money. Um, but, uh, you know, for the challenges that they both face, both have succeeded wildly beyond what people thought they would be at this point. There's, uh, you know, I, I, that was exactly sort of what we were looking for as a tease for what I really think we should continue as a, as a deep conversation because it really touches so many businesses, such a giant sector of the economy and, and, and so many other touch points to how we think, uh, engage with the world. It, it, it's really a deep conversation. And of course I'm struck, as you say, there's a new article was posted totally unrelated to the earlier one I referenced. Looking back at 2007 at all the tech editors, all the tech writers who panned the iPhone and predicted that it would not work. It was a convergence play of different types of services and technologies in one bundle that had never really worked before. And here we are 14 years later, it still works. You can still, they can still charge a premium for it. And they, they still have relatively small market share of the smartphone market. And yet they, they continue to dominate profitability wise. I guess for this episode, we're going to have to leave it there. Let's just, let's just put a big ellipsis, a big to be continued on this conversation. Chris Hill of market uh, of Motley Fool Money, number one stock and investing radio show in America. Thanks very much. More to come.